You are listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this content is edifying to your walk and an encouragement to your heart. Let's join Pastor Mike as he brings us the word. And we worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your presence here among us. Again, Lord, we just bow before you. Set our hearts in the right place, in the right posture to receive your word, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Newtonian physics. Not a lecture on Newtonian physics, and not an area of study that is my speciality. But it's fascinating, nonetheless, as I was reading this week, the first law of motion is that every object moves in a straight line unless acted upon by a force. So once set in motion, uh, an object will just continue in motion in the same direction unless something interferes with it. Does that, does that make sense? We're getting a little bit of science this morning. Uh, the greater the mass of the object, the greater the thing, the greater the force that's needed to stop it. If I started, we we're out in the, in the area out here, and one of the toddlers from our ER kids' room started running full speed at you, you could probably stop the kid pretty easily, you know, just put your knee out. Uh, don't, don't do that. I, um, that's what I would do. What would Pastor Mike do? Uh, but if I, if I just started charging at you full speed out there, that would be a different thing, right? And if you're smart, you just sidestep me and leave your foot there for me to trip on. Uh, beautiful picture of me splattered on the floor. But this is the, the first law of Newton's, uh, Newtonian physics. It's difficult to stop things that have been set in motion. Does that make sense? Things that, that have been set in motion, not just in physics, not just in the physical realm, but spiritually. Uh, I think this is true emotionally for us. Once we get that, that ball rolling down the hill emotionally, whatever it is, it's hard to stop it. Uh, a great example of this is weddings. Weddings are hard to stop once they've started, right? Um, you can do it, but it's, it's going to be weird and awkward, and it's going to go badly. Um, I've been in upwards of 60 weddings probably over my life. Uh, one of those, I got to be the groom. It was a really good wedding. I've officiated, I've officiated dozens of weddings. I've uh, attended uh, many weddings, I've enjoyed all of them, but a small handful. Um, but the capacity in which I've been invited to the largest number of weddings has been as a singer or as a musician. And some of you didn't, maybe don't know that my undergrad degree is in music. Um, but the musicians are, like I think, the one position in a wedding ceremony that can most easily wreck the event. Um, that can go really well or it can go really badly. And I've seen some singers and musicians wreck weddings. But I've also seen some amazing musicians flex um, in the moment and, and change things up on the fly and save weddings. So like imagine a, a pianist sitting there who's begun the wedding march at the piano only to have the pastor kind of do the run walk thing, right? Really quickly up to her and whisper in her ear that uh, the bride's not ready. There's, there's been a tear in the dress. It's going to take five minutes to sew up the tear. And, and so that doesn't really sound like a big deal to you and me. Uh, unless you're the person playing the piano. And then it's a really big deal because you've already started the wedding march and this thing is in motion. And, and everybody in the room, you know, is conditioned when they hear the wedding march to do what? Stand up, Stand up right? And they're looking for the bride. And so he, here's this, 
this, this, there's a wedding where this actually happened. I was reading about this sweet lady at the piano was so good at what she did. Um, she was able to just segue from the wedding march into a couple of hymns because she'd been playing for churches for so long. And, and the whole congregation began to sing these hymns together as they waited for the bride. It was, it was beautiful. Um, that is skill that I don't have. But to be able to improvise and go with the flow is necessary in that moment because the thing is already set in motion, right? This, this is the, the reality. Things that are set in motion are hard to stop. And there are times when it seems like we've set things in motion that are disastrous uh, or irreversible. When we get here to the second chapter in the book of Daniel, the text this morning is describing for us uh, one such time where something's been set in motion and it can't be stopped. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has had a very disturbing dream. And he wants to know and understand the meaning of this dream. So he summons a number of his senior staff. He gives them an assignment that was more difficult than anything he had ever given them before. He wanted, to, to know, he wanted them to tell him not just the interpretation of the dream, which anybody could just you know, make up whatever they wanted to say, but as a test of their truth, he wanted them to tell them the dream that he had had which no, nobody's able to do that. Um, so for the king to ask this would be incredibly distressing. And um, for Nebuchadnezzar to demand this of his staff was actually disastrous. His dream almost becomes a nightmare for his own advisors. And he, in Nebuchadnezzar, you read history, not just in the Bible, but secular history about that empire. He was a very brutal, demanding, tyrannical person. And he had no hesitation in dealing severely with people that he considered to be his enemies. And he'd already threatened to take their lives if they, if they didn't come through. And so um, they, they would have all died had Daniel not sought the God of heaven for an answer. Daniel's the one who saves them. Or God's the one who saves them, but he used Daniel to do it. Daniel sought the one true living God. See, the God of the Bible is the creator of everything, and he exists outside of his creation it's not pantheism where God is everything and he's in everything. He's, he's separate from his creation. He's outside of it. He's not a prisoner of the space-time continuum as are the gods contrived by men. The gods of the Babylonians, as with all pagan gods, every other so-called god, are creations of man's superstitions and imaginations. They're actually demons who take advantage of those religious systems to gain control over people as they masquerade as gods. Um, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with uh, biblical language and kind of the big, biblical cosmology of the universe, uh, demons are fallen angels. And they're spiritual beings with great power that mortal men would consider to be supernatural. They're powers that we don't have and that we don't have access to in ourselves. But since they are created beings, created by God, they cannot know and control the future the way God can. So there, there are things that only the Creator God can do and only that He can make known. And we're going to see that here in the text, that the Lord will use that fact, that only God could do these things, to magnify Himself in the eyes of a pagan king. So we're in Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 to 49. And um, if you have your mobile device, or you're reading the, especially if you have the YouVersion app, you can click on the menu and go to events and see Emmaus Road Church. My sermon notes are there. And if it helps you to read along, um, if you retain information better that way, feel free to do that. 
Uh, normally I would read the text and then we go back and exposit the text, but because the text is so long this morning, we're just going to jump right into the exposition. So look at verses 19 to 23 here with me. It says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel asked the king for some time, if you'll remember, to discover the dream. And then he proceeded to pray all night with his three fellow exiles. And God has revealed the dream to him. And Daniel and his friends are praising God. So this, this next morning, he, he's going to the king. He's going to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's telling him about the dream. See, God is sovereign. Sovereign. Sovereign is a... Let me, let me take a a moment and define the word sovereign. Uh, sovereignty means, you look up any, any good Bible dictionary, God's right to rule. He, he can do whatever he wants to do. He's the king. Little Mel Brooks, it's good to be the king, right? He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. That's sovereignty. It's his right to rule as he pleases. God does what he wants. He's answerable to nobody. Now, let me, let me add just a little caveat here. Some people have taken sovereignty to mean God controls, meticulously controls everything. And I, I, that's not what sovereignty means. It's not the divine uh, determination of all things whatsoever come to pass. It's his right to rule however he wants. He can do what he wants. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Okay, that's sovereign. But you read on down to verse 16 in that same psalm, Psalm 115, verse 16, says the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he's given over to the children of man. So God's uh, sovereign, but he's given the earth over to mankind to steward and to subdue. You remember that back in Genesis, to, to subdue it? That's limited sovereignty. And God's the only being who's truly sovereign because he's the only being who's truly autonomous. And what do I mean by autonomous? That means... He's not dependent on anything or anyone. He's completely self-sustaining. He's not dependent. So he's truly autonomous and that he can do whatever he wants to do. He's not limited. See, man has limited sovereignty because man has limited autonomy. We can't do whatever we want because we're dependent creatures. I can't levitate or fly under my own power, though I desperately want to. Wouldn't that be a great power to have? I, I really would love to fly. Just, just. Take off right here from the stage. I can't. I don't have the power to do that. I, I, I'm, I can think of other examples from my life of, of how I'm not autonomous. I, I was unable as a child to become a thundercat despite my deepest longings. Stop judging me. Stop. You all had some desire that you look back now and you go, that was ridiculous. But I, I didn't have the power to do that. So Daniel has come to the right source. He's come to the God who's sovereign over all, the God who gives wisdom to those who seek from him. God reveals the deep things and the hidden things. There are no secrets with God. 
He sees all things. He knows all things. Even the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. God sees those things clearly. So Daniel's come to the right source. And because God's given him the dream and the interpretation, his heart is a heart of praise and worship and thanksgiving unto God. So we go on into verse 24. We'll read a few verses here. It says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went to him, he went and thus said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name, had been, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what should be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel's not... He's not getting his jabs in here with the other wise men, the Magi, the Chaldeans. He's not taking a jab at them. He's just being exceptionally clear that this is a unique work of God and that God is above all the other gods. He's the maker of heaven and earth, and he gets all the credit and all the glory for what's, what's happening in this moment. And if you check out verse 30 again, Daniel doesn't want to detract from God getting all the credit and praise. So what he's essentially saying is, look, God has spoken to you, O king. And he wants to show you something of great importance. And I'm merely the intermediary here. I'm just the vessel through which this word is coming to you. And, and I, I would just say, as an aside, I think um, pastors ought to strive to function in that way as well. We're just the vessel through which God, is, he's already given his word. Like, you have access to his word. You don't need me to, to have access to his word. But all a pastor does is spend time with the Holy Spirit in the word and say, this is what it means. This is what it means. It's not coming from me. It's not coming from me. Sometimes people give praise to the person instead of praising God for the person. And that's a mistake. A good pastor is quick to acknowledge God the way Daniel's doing here. And so we go to 31 uh, on down to 35. <clears throat> Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. So now he's telling him what he saw in his dream. This image, uh, mighty and, and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and its arms were of silver. Its middle and thighs were of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. It's just dust, basically, blown away in the breeze. The wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. So this dream, you see this up here behind me on the screen, this, this dream 
featured a huge and glorious statue of man. His head was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs made of iron and its feet partly made of iron and partly of baked clay. And then Daniel says that in the dream, this rock that was not cut out by human hands, no, no human had anything to do with this rock, right? It, 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 it hit the foot of the statue and the whole image, the whole statue became like chaff on the threshing floor. It was made dust. And, and this huge rock, this rock that hit the statue became this huge mountain that fills the whole earth. This vision, by the way, gives us our modern idiom. If you've ever heard feet of clay, that person has feet of clay. It, it means uh, hidden fault or, or innate weakness in that person. But the, that's the dream, Right. So Daniel tells him the dream, and now he gives him the interpretation. Look at 36, and we'll read quite a few verses here on down to 45. <clears throat> this was the dream. Now we will tell the king his interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom, God has given, to whom the God of heaven has given this kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hands was given uh, wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so that kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together. Just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. So let's deal with the meaning of this in historical terms. Daniel's interpretation given to him by God explains that the statue represents a series of kingdoms in history, each one less glorious than the one before it, as indicated by the decreasing value of the metal. Did you catch that? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay. Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, stating that God had given Nebuchadnezzar much power, now, most conservative interpreters who believe that the book of Daniel is inspired, and they should, because God, God wrote it, um, they interpret the four sections as representing the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And I would just say to you that this interpretation is found as early as Irenaeus in, in AD 202, and in Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his writings, it's found in uh, most of the Jewish rabbis of the early, around the time of the early church. And uh, just to give you a quote, Martin Luther said, uh, upon this interpretation and the meaning, 
all the world is harmonious. In fact, in history, strongly proved this to be true. So pretty, pretty unanimous down through church history until we get to the, um, into the early 1900s, like mid-1800s, early 1900s, and then you start to get all kind of crazy stuff. But um, when we get to the feet of mixed clay and iron, it will be a divided kingdom, he says. So during this time, this final empire in the world, this rock is going to smash them all to bits. And there's a prediction that God's going to set up a kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. And all previous, all prior earthly kingdoms are going to be brought to an end. So if you've been paying attention, we've been sure to say this every week because it's kind of the central theme of the book of Daniel. But the kingdoms of men are passing away and the kingdom of God is coming to pass. That's the theme of this book. And so several aspects can be observed about this statue and this progression of kingdoms. The first one is perspective. See, Nebuchadnezzar's dream describes a series of kingdoms from man's perspective. They appear as a beautiful image composed of various metals, some of those precious metals. And Daniel's night vision, you're going to see later in coming chapters, he's going to have another vision that describes the same kingdoms, but that describes it from God's perspective. And they appear as a series of vicious beasts. And that disparity between the way man sees the kingdoms of the earth and the way God sees the kingdoms of the earth is super important, and it ought to give us pause. And God's perspective on, on the things that happen down here are very different from our perspective, typically. That's, so that's number one. That's, uh, the aspect number one is perspective. Number two would be a downward trend. Because the value of each metal reduces as these kingdoms advance. It's less and less valuable. At the same time, now this is interesting, each metal gets stronger with each kingdom until we get to the last kingdom, which is the weak, has the weakness of clay mixed in. But the, uh, the metals deteriorate from the top of gold to the, to the clay in the feet. There's, there's a a corresponding lower specific gravity. That is to say, um, gold is much heavier than silver. And silver is heavier than brass, and brass than iron, and then the clay and the feet is the lightest material of all. So while these materials increase in weight, um, de excuse me, decrease in weight as we go down, they increase with hardness. And, and so with the exception of the, the toes and the feet. But this means that the statue is top-heavy and weak at the bottom, which, which means at some point it's going to topple over. It's going to fall. It's going to fall. You might even say it's bound to fall. And this is broken by God. The image is destroyed directly by God himself. It tells us that the kingdoms represented by the series of precious metals span from the time of Daniel in, in exile in Babylon until the time that God comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. And we haven't seen that happen yet, so that means we're still in the timeline. So let's look at verse 46 to 49. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel, commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. 
That's pretty awesome. He got a big promotion, and it was all God's doing. And we're going to see that that position that he's now put in is pivotal for what's coming in the chapters ahead. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to three areas of application for us as Christ's church in the 21st century. Three things this morning. The simplicity of ministry, the importance of prophecy, and the emerging reality. We'll just talk about those three. Let's start with the simplicity of ministry. Two things that held Daniel up were faith and prayer. Can you see that in the text? He was a man of faith. He believed in God. He trusted God. And he was a man of prayer. He, he spoke with God. He, he brought his request to God. Those two things, faith and prayer, those things go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Because in order to pray, you have to have faith that there's a God who you can't see. And that he hears you when you pray. And beyond that, more than just hearing, he listens to you. And he answers your prayers. That takes faith. And in order to maintain and grow in your faith in Jesus Christ, prayer becomes your constant companion. Talking to Him all day long, bringing your petitions to Him, your needs to Him all day. A lifeline to God at all times. So those two things, prayer and faith, hand in hand. And so personally, I find these days several times a week um, at various parts of the day, I'm not even, sometimes I just find myself doing it. I didn't realize I was doing it. I'm praying I'm praying the armor of God. I'm praying through Ephesians 6 a lot. And so, so you, need to, you need to center in on, on prayer in these days. Those two things go hand in hand, prayer and faith, right? So because of the faith and prayer of Daniel, God added to the equation. you got faith and prayer, and then God adds revelation. He adds his revelation coming from him, right? We talked about this last week. So the result of these three in the life of Daniel, you can see it, or in the life of any born-again follower of Jesus, um, you can see Faith, prayer, God's word, his revelation to us. Faith, prayer, and God's word. So look back at the text. What's the result of those three things in the life of Daniel? What's the result of those three things in the life of a Christ follower? Faith plus prayer plus God's word, his revelation. What does Daniel do? He worships. He rejoices in the one true and living God. It's an overflow of his heart because he's been speaking with God. He's been walking in faith and obedience. And he's, just, he's communing with the one true and living God. And, and out of his heart, it's just this abundance of worship and rejoicing. Daniel's overwhelmed by God's answer to his prayers so much, he just overflows in praise to God. Look at, look at what he says. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might he says, Oh God of my fathers, I give thanks to you and praise for you've given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. So, so our equation is faith plus prayer plus God's revelation, his word, should result in worship and rejoicing in the life of the person whose heart is set on loving and obeying Jesus. Right? That should be the reality for us. Now here's the simplest part of this equation. It's astoundingly simple which we, to our detriment, regularly overcomplicate. It is ministry. We overcomplicate this. It's so simple. Ministry is simply the overflow of what I just described to you. That's all it is. That's all it is. Ministry is the overflow of this reality. Faith plus prayer plus God's word leads to worship and rejoicing, and that all just flows over into ministry. What is ministry? It's just faithful obedience. It's just faithful obedience. 
Men and women, listen, please, please hear me. Please hear me this morning. You do not need a master's of divinity or a PhD to minister. You don't. You absolutely don't need those things. What you do need is to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. But our obedience, like Daniel's, is not a, it's not a begrudging, it's not a heavy, uh, wearisome obedience. Um, though I, I will say to you, when you start to really pray and press into prayer, you start to labor in prayer. There's, there's, a, there's a place of really just being heavy and, and burdened with what God's put on your heart to pray for. But, but ministry is not wearisome. It's not burdensome. It's a joy. Now, do you not see the heart of the worshiper in Daniel when the answer comes? He doesn't need an action plan to go do ministry. He just, it just flows out of him. He just says what God wants him to say. It's a natural byproduct of what God's already been doing in his life. And, and it, <laughs> this is what kills me. Even Nebuchadnezzar falls down to worship God. He just gets on his face. And that's the power of the presence of God's spirit. And I just need to say to you, like, we need that as much as we can get it in these days. We need it so desperately as the church. Just to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let his heaviness just, just come into this place. So faith and prayer and God's word leads to worship and rejoicing, and all that just flows right into ministry. It's just, it's just letting that excitement about Jesus just get a hold of you. Uh, I'm not, uh, I hesitate to tell you this story, but I don't want to brag. I'm not, I'm not bragging. But God has just been lighting me up about evangelism. I feel like the hour is late, and Jesus is coming, and there are a lot of people who don't know him. A lot of people who don't know him. And I just want to tell them. There's a couple sitting out here yesterday. And I pull up and I'm coming into space. We had a secret baccalaureate service. Well, I edited this out so that the governor doesn't hear about this. Um, we had a secret baccalaureate service here last night for six high school students who graduated because they couldn't do that. And we said, no, they can do that here. And as I pulled up in the parking lot yesterday, this couple sitting out front of the apartment building over here, this older couple. And I went over there and just started talking to them. Had a couple of gospel tracks, and I've started, I, I've started you, you don't have to do this, but I, I just feel like um, people need a little enticement, or they need to feel appreciated, or, or like they're valued. And so I just got a bunch of little $5 Starbucks cards, and I put them in the gospel track. And I say, hey, I wanted you to have this. This is for your consideration. There's a little treat in there for you. Just wanted you to have that. Just entice them. Just, just read this. Consider this. And I was able to have a conversation with those people. It was so good. It was so good. The Holy Spirit, I just, man, it's just an overflow. It's just an overflow. Simplicity of ministry. That's number one. Number two is the importance of prophecy. Because prophecy proves that the Bible is God's word. It proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. There are... 308 exacting prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of the Messiah. 308. Many of those prophecies deal with things that no person can control, like where you would be born and what family you would be born into. You can't manipulate the, those things, right? Yet Jesus fulfilled all 308 of these prophecies precisely and completely in his birth, life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, for you numbers people, for you statisticians in the room, that number, 
the odds of one person fulfilling all 308 of those prophecies about the Messiah is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 over the number 10 with 17 zeros after the 10. That's astronomically improbable, so as to be practically impossible. But that's not all. That was Jesus' first coming. For every one of those 308 prophecies about the first coming, did you know that the scripture has eight times as many about the second coming? Eight times as many prophecies about the second coming. It is the most sure event in human history. It has yet to happen. You can be sure that it's going to take place. Liberal scholars hate the book of Daniel because Daniel is filled with prophecy. It proves God's authorship of the text. If you read those scholars, you'll find out from them that Daniel didn't actually write Daniel. (laughs) Somebody else did, hundreds of years later, because there's no way that somebody living in the era of Babylon could know about the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans coming later. It can possibly. Well, yeah, if your starting presupposition is there's no supernatural and God isn't real, you've got to figure out something to do with the text. Right? But that's not where we're coming from. We're saying God is real. He knows the end from the beginning. He tells us the future in his word. Prophecy proves that the Bible is true. When you reject the possibility of supernatural revelation, you don't have much to go on when it comes to the word of God. The prophecy is God's divine stamp of the authenticity on the text of the Bible that proves that it's his word. It's not man's best thoughts about God. It is God's word. And here in Daniel 2, we see an incredible prediction of the kingdoms of the world in advance. And now we have the luxury of looking back and seeing most of that played out in history. Not all of it, but most of it. I say most because there are two kingdoms yet to go. The feet of iron and clay mixed together and the rock that's coming that's going to smash all of them to bits. So the simplicity of ministry here in Daniel chapter 2 and the importance of prophecy here in Daniel chapter 2 and then this, this last consideration for you this morning is the emerging reality in which we currently live. Where are we on the timeline? These first four kingdoms have been identified as Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and the Roman empires. This identification has come from the workings of matching further prophecies in the Bible. Daniel's already said that Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, is the head of gold, so there's no question about that. Babylon fell to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And we'll get there in the text later in chapters when we deal with the handwriting on the wall at this big party that the king's throwing later. Greece becomes the successor of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Iron Empire can only be Rome, which interestingly matches the fact that 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 part of the statue, everything's been monolithic at that point, right? Even the arms, like this is all one thing. And then when you get to the legs, there are two. They're separated, the two legs. And we know from history that the Roman Empire was divided into east and west. It had two legs, interestingly. Now, opinions differ on the Fifth Empire. Some people tried to identify various periods in Europe's history as the clay and iron feet. Others claim that the feet represent the divided remnants of Rome before supposedly being conquered by Christianity. I I don't think that holds water. Still others believe that the clay iron empire is yet to come. The kingdoms of the Antichrist will be a revived Roman empire. I have ten leaders or ten nations comprising that uh, because there are ten toes of the statue. And, and what we know 
We know that Christ will defeat the forces of the Antichrist, Revelation 17. And after that, Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth. He's the rock that smashes the image. And the kingdoms of this world, Revelation 11 says, will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Folks, that's the ultimate spoiler. We know how the story ends. So even if it gets really hard between now and then, and it might, we know that Jesus wins, and He will reign, and He will rule forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we learn several things from this text. Verse 44, he says, in, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people, but it will crush those, all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it, it will itself endure forever. So the coming kingdom of God will be literal, not figurative, literal. There are, there's a whole subdivision of Christianity that, that buys into the idea that the coming kingdom is a figurative kingdom. It's not a literal kingdom. But the kingdom of God will be set up and established in history, in the time period that the kingdom is described in the king's interpretation. It's the last kingdom. And it displaces all the other kingdoms. We, we talked about this at length back in our kingdom series in the month of April leading up to Easter. So if you, if you weren't with us then, I encourage you to go back and watch those sermons or listen. But Jesus declared in Mark 1.15, he said, The time has come. The kingdom is near. And it's going to be fully actualized and realized that Christ's coming. But it was established when he came to the earth as our Messiah. So the coming kingdom is literal. And then the coming kingdom is divine. God will be the one to set it up. God is the one who rules and reigns, not man. It is a divine kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. The kingdom will never be destroyed or succeeded by any other. He uses the phrase left to another people. That will never happen. It's never going to be passed off to somebody else. It's going to endure forever. It's an eternal kingdom. And it is a consuming kingdom. Because that rock that smashed the statue becomes a great mountain. It says the mountain fills the whole earth. It consumes everything. It will crush all other kingdoms. It will bring them to an end. These thoughts are echoed throughout the Messianic prophecies. Especially when we get to Daniel 7. Uh, the, this, this section of Daniel that deals with the Son of Man. Uh, it says in Daniel 7.14 that the Son of Man... Daniel's having a vision. He sees someone is like a son of man. He looks like a human being, uh, but he can't see who he is. The son of man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's Daniel 7, 14. Elsewhere in Scripture we read this, Luke 1, 32 he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. Listen, can I tell you? Jesus never sat on David's throne when he was on earth. Never happened. David's throne didn't exist in the time of Jesus. But there was a promise. There's a covenant made with David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. David's throne. That has yet to happen. That's a political kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, he says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It will be complete. The Psalms echo these, 
uh, same truth, Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. How many begotten kids does God have? One, Jesus Christ, the one and only begotten Son of God. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It's clear that Jesus identified himself with the kingdom. He says immediately after telling the parable of the wicked tenants, uh, uh, there's a picture of Israel rejecting their Messiah. He says in Matthew 21, have you never read the scriptures? The stone, the rock that the builders rejected has become the what? It's the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it's amazing in your eyes. You're baffled by this. Like that rock over there? You're going to use that as a cornerstone for what you're building? God's like, yeah, I delight in that rock. That rock's my son. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. And the one who falls on that stone, on that rock, will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. That's in, it's really interesting. I mean, did you catch that? What Jesus said there in Matthew 21? He said that this rejected cornerstone that, that people look at and go, no, really? No. God's chosen that stone. And it's a stumbling block. People will stumble over that. And it's a stone that will crush whoever it falls on. That stumbling block passage Jesus refers to is found in Isaiah 8, 14. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against for both houses of Israel. He will become a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So remember the crushing stone Jesus refers to is tied back to our passage in Daniel where the kingdom of God is mentioned. In Daniel 2, remember the fourth kingdom will crush and break all the others. And in those times, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. It'll never be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure. Folks, I would just say to you this morning, Jesus is the rock. He's the divine son of God. He's the Mashiach Nagib, Messiah the King, who at his second coming will destroy all earthly kingdoms and substitute his own. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet and there are loud voices in heaven. And this is what they say. They're proclaiming the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will what? Reign forever and ever. Where are my choir nerds who sang Handel's Messiah like 800 times? Right? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And this is the part where we just go on and on and sing Handel's Messiah. Uncultured Philistines. <laughs> Revelation 12, verse 10. Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Some of you, many of you will probably know this prayer. You may have grown up saying this prayer with your parents. Maybe, maybe you don't know it. That's okay. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next line? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kind of kingdom that's coming. Your kingdom come and your will be done right here on earth 
like it's done in heaven. You know that angels don't hesitate and they don't question. You know, ever see an angel go, I heard you, Lord. I'm just, I'm in, I'm in, the, middle of a, I'm in the middle of a thing right now. I'll, I'll get to that. It's not how it works. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen. Now, I did some research on that prayer and some older versions of that prayer that appear in other sources uh, have a variation in that. It is more consistent the further back you go. And it says, and do not bring us into the time of evil or the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. I love that. Because Revelation 3, verses 10 and 11 said, Jesus speaks to the church and he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Folks, this morning, I just want to say to you that the kingdom of iron and clay is almost upon us. But there's another kingdom coming. And that, king, that kingdom that is coming is going to smash all earthly kingdoms to dust as Christ comes to rule and to reign. And until such time as that comes to pass, we continue to pray that Jesus would not bring us into that hour of trial, that time of Jacob's trouble, but that he would rescue us from the evil one. Amen? Let's pray that right now together. God in heaven, we worship you. We give you all praise. We love you. We lift up your name in this place. And we just say to you, Lord, we want to be found faithful in your sight. We know that your kingdom is coming. We don't know the timing of all these things, but we pray that you would be gracious to us and give us strength to endure until that time. And not just endure, not just huddled up in our bunkers, huddled up in our basements, enduring, waiting, pleading, but boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, making known to the lost and to the nations the truths that you have disclosed in your word, offering salvation, as your ambassadors to those who are perishing. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. And we ask these things in the matchless and mighty name of Jesus our King.